All right, folks. I've got a minute after six, so we'll go ahead and get started. As always, we let's open up with a word of prayer. We'll ask for the Lord's help. We don't want to ever assume that any man's skill or knowledge, whether that be mine or yours, be sufficient for tasks like these. So our prayer that we pray every week is not just habit, I hope, uh, but it's, it's real need. It's real need. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance to, to gather together. We thank you for the incredible, bloody, painful work that you have done to bring us to life, to give us eyes to see and love Christ, hearts that now hate sin and love righteousness, hearts that actually want to be ruled by you instead of being ruled by ourself. And now we have this new community that we can enjoy life together, serving one another and helping one another. But Father, we recognize that though we enjoy many blessings here, this is not the end. This is a very, very small taste, as we heard this morning, like the cover page of a great, endless novel. So, Father, help us to live faithfully in these days. I pray, Lord, that you would engage our minds tonight. Some of us have already spent an hour studying your word. Some of us are uh, still enjoying our Sunday afternoon nap hangover. Um, some of us may just not be interested. So, Father, I pray that you would capture our attention and our imagination. But I don't presume to, to be able to do that. I don't have that sort of skill. And so I'm depending upon you. Lord, let all the different texts that we talk about, even though we talk about many and, and in a different type of organization, and most of them are going to be on the screens, Lord, I pray, work by your Spirit. Awaken us to love Christ more and to understand your word. But I pray that we would not be a people who content ourselves to a little Bible. Maybe a little bit here, a little bit there. Memorize Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Read our Sunday school lesson. Father, help us be a people who live in the book, who pour over it night and day, so that we'd be like the man in Proverbs 1, who, or Psalm 1, who when, when, when famine comes and when a storm comes, his leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Father, let that be true for us. Let us plant our roots deep. Let us drink deeply. Let us become people who love your word and think carefully and humbly about what it means and then how we should live. I ask these things and trust them to you because you're good. You've died for us and so we know that you hear us. And we'll leave them there. Amen. All right, good evening, folks. We are in week seven, eight-ish of our big story. We have been journeying through the scriptures, trying to, trying to put the Bible together in a slightly different framework. As you'll remember, we have been using the motif of God's people in God's place under God's rule, which describes God's kingdom. And I have been suggesting to you that if you follow the way the kingdom of God develops that's a key word there, then you're going to be in a position to better understand the scriptures. 
Those of you ladies, uh, show of hands, ladies, who are doing the Romans Bible study, either on Sunday nights or Tuesdays, okay? Yep. You will need this skill so much to understand Romans. Go home and read Romans chapter 4 or Romans chapter 9 or Romans chapter 11, right? All of this is assuming that you can understand the way God's kingdom develops over the Bible. If you don't understand it, you won't understand Paul's argument because it's hard, right? And that's true for so much of the Bible, including the Gospels. So we've been tracing our way through. You see, we've made some progress. This, uh, you don't, don't worry about copying this down or reading it, but that's, that's what we've done so far. And I want to try to put us uh, back in, into context from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Tonight, we're going to come to the proclaimed kingdom. And just to, I don't, I'm not big into spoilers, or I'll go and give you the spoiler. This is the age we live in right now. Okay, out of all of these categories, this is today. This was when the apostles lived, and this is today, and this will be next year if the Lord tarries. Right? So this is, you could, so when, I, so when last time was the present kingdom, don't get confused because the present kingdom was in Jesus' day, right? Now we're talking about the proclaimed kingdom. Last time, we saw that when Jesus came, he came proclaiming that he was bringing in the kingdom of God. If you remember, this is seen in all the Gospels, particularly in Mark chapter 1, when it said Jesus came on the scene proclaiming, Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying that it has come. It is now. He was bringing in the kingdom. And we're going to understand, we're going to try to understand what does that really mean? I, I don't know about you. I ch- listen, I try to be really honest about what I know and don't know about the Bible. And there's a lot I don't know. There's more that I don't know than that I do know. And one of the tricks I've found to learning about the Bible is just admit when you don't know what something is. My goodness, right? So when you're reading in the Gospels and Jesus is talking about such and such parables describing the kingdom of God, well, just, if you don't know, real, like, or at least be honest, like, what, what does he mean by this describing the kingdom of God, right? What, is that, what does that mean, right? So I would encourage you to be, just to be honest. Well, Jesus was saying that he was bringing in the kingdom. But it's really weird because he died. So it's hard to understand, like, his kingdom seems to be very confusing to me because the king doesn't die in the kingdom, right? Do you see some of the tension? And those poor disciples, we can sympathize with them because they didn't get it either. Uh, and Jesus scolded them for it. But Jesus came, he said that he was bringing in the kingdom, and he was saying that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Do you remember we saw last time where Paul said in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God are yes and amen in him, right? Yes and amen in him. And that's why through him we utter our amen to God. He was saying that all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him. All of them were pointing to him. And he scolded them for not seeing it. And so what we saw last time is I'm making the argument that every component of the Old Testament system, the old model, which includes the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and the land, all of that's pointing to Christ. So the the promised land was pointing to Christ. The sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. The temple was pointing to Christ, which means that we have to understand how that changes. Those were a temporary model. 
But Christ is the permanent reality. Christ is the permanent reality. A, a few weeks before that, we were talking about the prophetic kingdom, right? The, the prophesied kingdom. And if we could summarize all the ways that the prophets were, were longing for the kingdom of God, they were anticipating the kingdom of God, one of the things they said, one of the big things, is that when the Messiah came, whoever he was, he would bring justice and renewal. Justice and renewal. What that means is, he's going to bring just judgment for all of God's enemies, those who are opposed to God will be judged. Okay, that's really confusing because Jesus said that he brought the kingdom. And yet Herod cut off John the Baptist's head, right? How do we make sense of that? Right? He also said that God's people would be vindicated. All the apostles were killed. What's, what's going on with the kingdom, right? He also said all things were going to be made new. And one of the things I think of is our Lord had a crown of thorns put on his head. There are no thorns in the newness of God's world, right? That doesn't make sense. None of this, it, it seems like this stuff hasn't happened yet. So where's the kingdom, Jesus? Where is it? Instead, this Messiah, he came and he died. And he actually called his people to do the same thing. It's not the kind of kingdom that you really want to be a part of if you love your life. So understandably, the disciples were very confused at the crucifixion. They weren't there, most of them. They didn't understand that in order for God's kingdom to come, he had to be crucified. Even though the prophets anticipated this, they didn't, under, they didn't understand that. And in fact, what we learn is the, as the Bible unfolds, especially through the work of the apostles, we came to understand that the kingdom could not come if Jesus did not die. It couldn't come. Because God cannot dwell with sinful people. So unless Jesus came and switched around the system, the kingdom is not going to come, at least in a way that we're going to be a part of. Jesus had to come and make a permanent payment for sin. He had to come and deal with wandering hearts. Anyone's heart wander? Mine does. So he came and wrote it on our hearts. And as we saw last time, he came to gather a new people a new people. He rejected Israel and is gathering a new Israel. So from the disciples' perspective, things were really confusing. But then after the resurrection, they looked up, right? I mean, it's really good to have a king. If he's going to die, you at least want him to be able to come back from the dead. That's, that's good. So they were excited about that. But, and they could tell that, okay, he really is the Messiah. And so they said, okay, now bring your kingdom, right? Look down at Acts 1, 6. So when they had come, so this is in Acts, after the resurrection. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay. I think that's a good question, personally. Uh, that's a question that I have been trying to sort out. Like, why not? I mean, why not? Could you answer why not? Well, they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus had to tell them and had to explain to them that there would have to be a delay. That's where you and I fit in. The promises of the kingdom of God will not be completely fulfilled until his second coming. His second coming. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 25, watch Watch, therefore, because you do not know the day nor the hour. 
Okay, let's try to put some more of these pieces together. This is one of those phrases that when I was, I guess when I was in seminary, and when you read the Bible, you come across this phrase all the time. A lot of confusion about what it means. A lot of confusion about why it even matters, right? I I was trying to come up with a way to explain to you how important this is. Because once you start to get it, new things will open up to you in the scriptures. And um, I don't have some super creative way. I'm just going to try to walk through it. Except for to say, it's important, right? Uh, Even though I didn't get it for a long time and I'm I'm still learning. So if Jesus had already come and initiated his kingdom, why doesn't it look like a new kingdom? Why doesn't, where is it? Like, where is the kingdom? Like, where do I go to worship the king? Where's his place? Where's his land? Where can I find his people? Well, you see, we need to understand that a change took place when Jesus came. He reveals that we should think of a two-age structure in the Bible. Okay, so let me see if I can help help you see this. This is, a good, this is a good spot to see it. Okay. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 said, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When? You see it? In this age or the age to come? Two ages. Jesus is talking about this age and a future age. Okay, so what does that mean? How does, how does that work? Well, I like graphics, so I made one for you. Whoops. Okay, let's, let's think about it like this. Let's think about it in terms of the present age. Now, I had a bunch of scripture I was going to show you, but I don't want to, I don't want to overwhelm you. Um, and I know I do that sometimes. So, so let's think about it like this. What is the present age? Jesus was talking about a present age. Well, the present age, think of it in terms, it's the period, it's still marked by sin. It's still marked by the fall and by death and by the curse. It's still marked with a longing for a new age. Sin and the curse continue on the earth even after Christ came. You see, it was certainly there before he came, but it was also there after he came. It's still here now. So that's the present age. Well, the second age, the age to come, that is the age of fulfillment. The age of freedom from sin. Who I cannot wait to be free from sin. I'm so tired of struggling with this body of flesh. I'm so ready to be free from this bondage to sin that I still experience though I've been set free. Freedom from sin, the second age includes freedom from sin and eternal life. So the question I have for you is, whoa, did it work? Which age do we live in? Which age do we live in? It means the kingdom of God here, or are we waiting on the kingdom of God to come? Yes. Very good, Benny. Bonus points for Benny. Right? We live in this period. In the in-between, 
in the now, not yet. We live in both. We live in the old age and we live in the coming age. Some of the old is gone, but some of the new has not yet come. We enjoy some of the new, but we still have to deal with some of the old, which is why I still sin, right? And why I'm still going to die. And why I had to go to the doctor on Friday, right? But it's also why I have power over sin to conquer sin. Do you see? We live in the in-between. There's a fancy word. It's actually not. It's one of those theological words that's not fancy. Those are my favorite. A lot of theologians call this the now, not yet. Do you feel the tension in that? The kingdom of God is here now, but it's not yet here. But it's here now, but it's not yet here. You see? If you don't get an idea of that tension, you're going to be really confused about reading the New Testament. But here's the thing. You're also going to struggle fighting sin. I'll explain why here in a little bit. There's a tremendous amount of tension between the last two ages. Now, there's a Bible term for this. Theologians call it now, not yet. Right? I forgot that part. Which age we live in. Okay, pretty slides. Um, there's a period between the ages which the Bible has a word for. It uses a couple words, but this is, the most, this is the most common word. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. This is just one spot. I just picked one text. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay. You see that phrase? In these last days, the last days, that is the biblical language for the term between the ages. The last days. If we can go back, that is the middle. The last days are in between. This is not just talking about right before, the, like the day before the rapture. It's not talking about during the tribulation. This is talking about now. The last days. The period between the ages. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection. And he spoke about his kingdom as if it was a present reality. He told, he said that anybody could enter it, but we also must wait for it. It's not until Jesus comes back that the kingdom will actually be fully realized. And Jesus will say, like he did in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Unless Christ comes, that's not happening tonight. Do you see? The kingdom is now and not yet. This, as I said, has massive implications for Christian living and for fighting sin. A lot of times in my counseling, one of the primary things I'm trying to do, whether I'm counseling myself or whether I'm trying to help someone else, is to help people see the new realities that are true of them in Christ. If you have been set free from sin, why would you run back to it? If you have inherited eternal life and in the kingdom of heaven there are no adulterers, why are you going to look at pornography? It doesn't even make sense. You're, you're, you have identity confusion. So, so much of fighting sin is understanding who you are as a new creature. And as you begin to understand that, the old desires fade away and the sin loses its power. So, we are new creatures 
who belong to the new creation. This is kind of my key phrase. I didn't put it on a slide. We're new creatures and we belong to a new creation, but we haven't received all the blessings yet, which is why we feel the tension. Okay, but why is there a delay? I mean, why didn't Jesus come, out of the, come off the cross, come out of the grave, finish it? Just bring us home. Why didn't he do that? Well, Paul wouldn't have gotten saved. I wouldn't have gotten saved. Let's think about why the delay. Peter said that people would begin to wonder if Jesus was ever going to actually come. He said this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in these last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Have you ever wondered that? If this stuff's really true, like, why don't you fix it? Why didn't he fix it? Why didn't, why didn't he come? Maybe it's not true. Maybe it is a pipe dream. Maybe tempted to think. And scoffers scoff in the same way. But just a few verses later, I didn't put this text on the screen, I don't think. Just a few verses later in Second Peter, he said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, the reason Jesus has delayed is for one primary reason, so that more people would hear the gospel and repent. That's, that's, the, that's what we're waiting on. That's the wait You could call this the age of gospel proclamation. This is the task that Jesus left his disciples with, right? We could have done this in Matthew 28. Uh, I'm doing this one in Luke. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be what? Who's the last person you told? Who's the last person you told about this? I know it's hard in America. I know it's hard in Johnson City. Everybody thinks they know it. Could it be that we're wasting our lives? Your witnesses to these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. In the book of Acts, which is the sequel to Luke, the same command is structured, right? So Jesus gives kind of a great commission sort of thing, and then he does the same thing he does in the great commission. He says, don't worry, I'll give you the spirit, right? Remember the great commission? That's exactly what he does. And I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. He does the same thing in Luke, and then in chapter, in Acts rather, he does the same thing, repeating it in the very next chapter. At this point, the, time, the uh, disciples were asking again, right, just as we said before, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And they're thinking, right, okay, the kingdom is here. We've got our king. He's come back from the dead. He rode on the donkey, and that's weird, but we'll talk to him about it. James and John probably had some sort of plan to, like, talk him into a new ride or something. But they're like, okay, the kingdom's here. He's come back from the grave. All right, let's do this. All right, let's bring in the army. Let's wipe him out. Let's set up. Let's build a new temple and get him a throne or something. 
And what did Jesus say? It's clear that they didn't understand. Jesus' concern was not to establish his kingdom in Israel. That was not his concern. He had bigger goals. He wanted to establish his kingdom where his domain stretched to the ends of the earth. When I was in college, I spent several weeks in Madagascar, which is an island off the east coast of Africa. It's very exotic, and it took forever to get there. And I remember one day, I was, see if I can backtrack this, I was eight hours, an eight-hour car ride away from the capital, which was a three-hour plane ride away from the nearest African city that I have to go to, which was a seven-hour plane ride to the nearest European city, which was a 14-hour plane ride to New York, which is a two-hour plane ride to Greensboro, which was like a two-hour car ride to my house. It was very far away. God wants it all. He wants it all. He is worthy, and so his dominion should and will and does stretch to the ends of the earth, even where those lemurs are in Madagascar. He wants it all. There's not any part of God's creation that he does not say, I made it, it's mine. He's redeeming the whole world, not just one nation and certainly not just white people. Where was I? Remember last time we saw that the kingdom was not just for ethnic Israel, but it's for a multi-ethnic new Israel. So there has to be a delay for the gospel to go out. Jesus was among the Jews and a few Gentiles, but there has to be a delay before the gospel could go out. Look back at this text. So this is the context. They were saying, okay, will you restore the, will you restore the kingdom? And what does he say? This is none of your business. <laughs> seems like the guys really in the prophecy don't, never mind. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. And it, power is better than knowledge in this context. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. What's that power for? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus' context shows, they ask a question about the coming kingdom, he says, uh, go be missionaries. Take the Spirit, go tell the gospel. He sent them on a purpose and then he left them. <laughs> right? He ascended into heaven after he did this. There's a book. Hey, what's the title of the book? Jesus Continued. Yeah, so uh, there's a book that he basically says, is it better to have Jesus beside you or Jesus in you? I'd rather have Jesus in me. That's what the truth of the Spirit is. The coming of the Spirit. So Jesus says, go. That's why in Matthew 24, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations. And then the end will come. In other words, don't worry about the timing. Just do your job. Right? You can kind of hear the undertones in the text. Okay, but let's, let's see. Oh, there's that. All right, let's think about the sending of the Spirit. Let's think about the sending and the work of the Spirit. Okay, I'm back up here. All right. 
You'll notice that with these commands that are in Luke, that are in Acts, that are in the Great Commission, Jesus is always making a promise. I'm giving you work to do, but you don't ever have to do it by yourself. You can have, you must have the Spirit. In fact, in other places, he says, don't even leave the city until you have the Spirit, right? Like it's dangerous to go out at night or something. Well, the Christians don't have to wait long because at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. I couldn't put it all up there because it's a bigger story. But think about what took place at, the Pente- at Pentecost. They begin by speaking in, in tongues. Now, tongues is, is controversial in some places, but if you think about it like this, what took place at Babel? Because of sin, God confused the people so that there's all these new languages, right? Sin scattered. We saw that all through the first couple of weeks. Now at Pentecost, God is using his people to proclaim the gospel. That's what they did at Pentecost in all these different tongues. They didn't know them. They didn't know what was going on, right? The gospel is now going forth in all these different tongues, which is exactly what is happening today. This is a very clear sign for the reason we've been given the Spirit. It's not to do tricks, not to edify yourself, but to help spread the gospel. God is reversing the curse. He's reversing Babel. Nations that were once divided because of sin, if the language is a barrier, then God's going to bring that barrier down. Why? Because God's making one new nation. One new people. We heard this morning, ethne, ethnos, right? And the gospel is going to pantata ethne, all the peoples, all the nations. So in the gospel, there's language unity. Language unity. We could call these last days the, the age of the Spirit. If you're familiar with church history, even just, just a tiny little chapter, mainly reading the New Testament, you know the gospel spread rapidly. It spread very rapidly in the first couple decades, particularly in that first century. And very soon the gospel had reached Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even Rome, which to them was the ends of the earth. And yet here we are 2,000 years later and God is still being patient. Praise God. Let's think about what the work of the Spirit does. We have this Spirit, but I want to talk a little bit about the work, right? Because if we're in that in-between, that little middle of the circle the, the, on the Venn diagram, right? What, what resources do we have? Well, we have the Spirit we've seen. Well, what is the Spirit? What does He do? Well, the first thing He does is the Spirit brings new birth, The Spirit brings new birth. In John chapter 3, you'll remember this famous story with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. It's not possible. This is why all these other people would hear Jesus teach. They couldn't see it. They didn't get it. Right? Seeing but not believing. They would see but they couldn't see. They couldn't see the kingdom. It's one of the reasons Jesus came and opened the eyes of blind people is because he was making people see. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In other words, by our own nature. Who, who, who here chose to be born? No. Yeah. We don't, we don't do that. By our own nature, we are rebels against God. That's what we've chosen. We never would choose to trust Christ. We need a miracle. 
We need someone to bring us to life, to cause us to be born. Well, that's what the Spirit does. You can see this in verse 5. I don't have any numbers on here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Spirit brings the new birth. He brings the new birth. Another thing that we can notice here, if, if you look at John chapter 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, a part of that is to convict. Right? That's part of what it means to, to be born again, is you're convicted of sin. And this is very helpful, I think. Uh, this is where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, right? It's better to have me inside you than beside you. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Spirit, the Paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? You see that? What does the Spirit do? Convicts the world of sin. Right? Convicts the world of sin. This is what is so dangerous, believer. When you sense the Spirit of God is convicting you, and if you do not act... You're hardening your heart. It is so dangerous. You're quenching the Spirit. But then the Spirit, he goes on, he he says, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Spirit convicts us of sin, and then points us to a Savior. That's what the Spirit does. I would argue that is not a one-time thing. But that is daily. The Spirit of God dwells in you. He's constantly convicting you of sin. And He doesn't just stop there. You don't end in like, woe is me, I'm such a terrible Christian. But you look again to the Savior. Preached a whole sermon series on this. You need the gospel again and again. And the Spirit of God preaches it to you again and again. The Bible makes it clear that all Christians have the Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Christians have the Spirit. The Spirit produces fruit. Christians, therefore, have fruit. You meet a person who does not have Christian fruit, what can you conclude? This person is probably not a Christian. It's important. But for us as believers, we know the Spirit of God dwells in us and He dwells in all believers. So this is important for us when we think about examining the fruit. One more thing to notice about the work of the Spirit in new birth is that the new birth is produced by the Spirit through God's Word. By the Spirit through God's Word. This is really... This is really exciting to think about, right? We, we know the, uh, the armor of God. And what is the sword called? It's the sword of what? It's the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Spirit produces the new birth through God's Word. I think one of the applications for us as believers... First of all, as we're evangelizing, you trust the Spirit, right? You can't save someone. It doesn't, I, <laughs> one, of the, one of the men that I had a chance to lead to the Lord back when I was in college, I did a terrible job of explaining the gospel to him. It took me like nine tries to get it right. 
And God saves people, right? He doesn't need me. He might use me, but he didn't need me, right? <laughs> One time I tried to share the gospel with somebody, and I walked away and I thought, I don't think I included Jesus. Like, oh my goodness, how bad can you blow it? I don't think I said his name. Like, I, I don't know how, how bad is that, right? And I mean, God uses, I mean, use Jesus in the gospel, but just take comfort. The Spirit of God is the one who saves, not you, not me, not evangelism training, evangelism seminars. We trust the Spirit and we move forward. But for us as believers, think about what this means for the ministry of the Spirit. If you want to change, where should you go? If you want to enjoy the ministry of the Spirit, if you want to put yourself in His transforming action, right, where do you go? You go to the sword. The sword of the Spirit. I'm so troubled at how much decent, unbiblical advice I hear given in these hallways. It's not God's solutions to our problems. God has called us to go to the book again and again and again. We solve our problems with the scripture, which is the sword of the Spirit. Okay, i got to keep moving. Um, the Spirit also equips us to serve Christ. He equips us to serve Christ. He does this through evangelism, right? We saw the connection between the Spirit and evangelism. Peter was famously filled with the Spirit, which enabled him to preach some pretty great sermons. I was thinking this morning about how... Um, Paul, you remember how Paul was preaching a sermon and it said that he tarried into the night? I think it says Acts 20. And uh, it was after midnight. <laughs> Paul, uh, I'm not Paul, I know. Well, the poor guy f- fell asleep preaching on the one and they fell out of the window and he died. Oh, that's okay, they raised him back to life. Um, I can't do any of those things, so I'll just keep it to an hour. Um, where was I again? <laughs> but, but we see that the Spirit is what enables bold testimony. And so the Spirit can give us boldness in our witness. It is not possible for us to claim, we can't say that we're filled with the Spirit if we're not doing evangelism, right? That's, that's, the, that's what the Spirit does. That's his concern. That's why Jesus left, for us to build his kingdom. But the Spirit also equips us to serve Christ in the church. In the church. I'm not simply talking about I'm talking about spiritual work primarily. An active concern for one another. Spirit equips us to minister to each other. We have all been given spiritual gifts that are for the mutual edification for the body, for the benefits of other people. So I would just say this. If you are a part of this church and you are not actively ministering to other people spiritually, you're not functioning as a member of the body of Christ. You've been given a gift to serve and edify and build other people up spiritually. God has made us a body and designed us to work together for the glory of Christ. That's why he said in the, in the chapter, which by the way, this is, this is the section of 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 where we read about tongues and gifts and prophecy and all this confusing stuff. Well, he makes it clear. The spiritual gifts are given. They're a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you're not serving, you are holding, if you're not serving in your spiritual gift, you are withholding nourishment and blessing from the people of God that God has blessed you with that you have a responsibility to give away. 
And a big part of that means you probably just need to cultivate some of your gifts and to grow in them. But that's for another day. But I'll just say this. Ministry is just too hard to do on your own strength. It is too hard. There are no degrees. There's no experience. It is impossible. It is spiritual work which needs spiritual resources. The Spirit also produces holiness in us. I wish I could spend more time on this because uh, I've been trying to sort this out in my, in my head as well. But we can put it, let's put up a, a chart. I'm on a roll of charts today. Uh, we can call this the three tenses of salvation. You've probably, or sanctification, whichever. Um, you've probably noticed this in the scriptures before. Okay, so we've got our present age and our age to come diagram, all right? You see those there on the timeline. Well, when Christ came, he saved us from the penalty of sin. Past tense, done, complete, right? Completely finished. When we have been saved from the penalty of sin, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, and we also understand that in the future age, We will be saved from the presence of sin. There will be no more struggle with sin as we've seen in our Sunday morning studies. John says this in 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when he appears, we should be like him. For we'll see him as he is. But that leaves like the big question about what about now? What about the middle? Why do you still struggle losing your temper with your kids or your spouse? Why do you still struggle with that addiction? Why can you not get committed to reading the scriptures? Why do you keep gossiping? Why? Well, it's because you are still being saved from the power of sin. Active right now. In Hebrews it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I've got a heart there with hopefully a representation of the Spirit. It's a reminder to us that we have new hearts. And the Spirit lives in our hearts which compels us and enables us to obey. I think, how does it show up there? But this is what is really exciting for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, and this is where it's so helpful for us to think about how we fight sin. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, deed, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you'll live. In other words, the key to fighting sin is the presence of the Spirit. This is where you and I feel so much frustration and so much tension between the now and the not yet. Because we're struggling to grow in this and even to understand this. We know that God has worked our salvation for us. That we can't contribute anything to it. We know that. But we also know that we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we're called to work. I would suggest, and this has been true in my life, and this is often true in the counseling room, the reason we struggle with sin is because we have not worked at it very hard. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? Jesus said, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, take drastic action. 
I don't know many people that have gotten a TV out of their house. And yet our TVs cause us to sin so much. Taking drastic action against the sin that remains in our life. This is where the key for battling sin comes. I don't have time to go through this tonight. This is Colossians 3. But when we come to understand that the Spirit lives in us, giving us a foretaste of what's to come, that is our new identity. And that is what helps us break from the present bondage to sin. But i got to keep moving. The proclaimed kingdom of God. So this is where we fill in our little chart. I guess I'll fill it here in a minute. The kingdom of God. So where do we see God's people at this epoch in history? Well, God's people are seen as in the church. God's people are the new Israel. He's making a new Israel, and that's the church. Who is the church? Not people that come here. Not even people that necessarily join, though it should be. The church are people who have trusted in Christ for salvation, who confess Him, have repented from their sins, are filled with the Spirit, and now walk in His ways. In other words, the church is made up only of believers. God's people, in the Old Testament, God's people, some of them were not believers. They were, it was a mixed group, right? This is what God would open the ground and swallow some of them alive. All right, you read that part? In the Old Testament, God's community was mixed. In the New Testament, it is not mixed. It is just believers. One of the best places to see this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is really cool. If you read your Old Testament well, this should ring some bells for you. Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Where did we hear that before? Who's, who's called the chosen race? Israel, right? You are a royal priesthood. Who is called a royal priesthood? Israel, Exodus 19. You are a holy nation. Who is called a holy nation? You see what I'm doing, right? A people for his own possession. Who is called a people of God's possession that he would bind up on eagle's wings? Israel, right? He's applying all of these particularities, these promises, these privileges about ethnic Israel in the Old Testament to the church in the New Testament. And Peter, 1 Peter is written to Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All of this, Paul is explicitly saying that God is making a new nation and he's applying these privileges and these blessings to this new group of people. And he's very clear, especially in Galatians, that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to obey ceremonial laws. They do not have to descend from Abraham to be a part of this new special family. A true Israelite, according to Romans 2, a true Israelite or a true member of God's household is not someone who is descended from Abraham, but someone who is a new creature in Christ. Read it for yourself. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, in other words, circumcised, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the law, the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see? 
the church, those who are believers, are God's people. Where's God's place? Jesus told us that when he came, he was the true temple. You remember, he told the Pharisees, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, now he's gone. He descended in, or he ascended rather, into heaven. But God still lives on earth, not in a building, in his people. God dwells in his people. That's why we say, if two or more are gathered together, God is with them, because he's in us. He's in us. We know that the Spirit of God lives in us, and that's why Paul said this, do you not know that your body is a what? A temple. What's the temple? Ask my daughter. She'll say God's place. It's where God go, people go to meet with God. The temple is God's place. Well, now we read that our, our bodies, we are God's temple, whom we have from God. What about God's blessing? Where's God's rule and blessing? Well, God's law, right, his Old Testament law, it reflects his eternal character. So it's still holy, it's still good, and it's still righteous. The problem is, is we are sinners. And so the way we relate to the law is that it is a taskmaster. It, it enslaves us. We can't obey it. In fact, we are powerless to escape its condemnation. But the promise of the gospel is that Christ has broken us free from the bondage of sin, and now he actively frees us to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. That's that now, not yet tension. We have the presence of the Spirit, which actually enables us to live up to God's standard. This is why in Galatians 5, if you want to, I don't have it all up here on the screen. I could have gone further all the way into the fruit of the Spirit. If you want the fruits of the Spirit, and if you don't want the fruits of the flesh, well, you need the Spirit. And you depend on Him, and He will produce those things. So if you walk by the Spirit, what happens? You're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on, but if you are led by the Spirit, walking by and being led by, precious promises to us. And then in Romans chapter 8, 14, for all who are led by the, Son, the Spirit of God, they're sons of God. So if we fill in our chart, this is what we see. God's people, the new Israel, specifically including Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. Where's God's place? Well, it is the individual believer. It's also the church. I didn't go through that tonight, but I think we understand that. Peter talks about God building up his church on top of the foundation laid by the apostles and Christ as the cornerstone. We're being built together. I guess that's Ephesians 2, rather. So it's the individual believer and it's the church made up of individual believers. That's where God dwells. And what is God's rule? Well, it's the new covenant, praise God, and we enjoy the blessing by the Holy Spirit. The new covenant, right, right, and God's written the law on our hearts, making us and causing us to obey. One final thing, let's just think about it like this. So what is our life like in these last days? If we're living in this now, not yet, how does that affect us now? Well, one thing is that our life is full of joy. I mean, it really is. Peter talked about this. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what do you do? You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It does not matter how much suffering you know here. You will never have to live without the hope of your salvation. That's why Jesus, Jesus modeled this for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But life in these last days is also marked by frustration. Can I get an amen? We suffer all sorts of trials because we are not in heaven yet. You struggle with sin. You struggle with bodies that break down. You struggle with other people that hurt you. You struggle with a world that rebels against you. But more and more, we we just long for things to be made right. Did you not leave church this morning longing for God to come back? Man, I hope so. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's so much to say here. Let's just say it like this. This groaning is because we've tasted. We've tasted. I talk about it all the time. If your Christian faith does not know joy, I don't know what you've tasted. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've tasted heaven on earth. We've been given a glimpse of what life should be like. But we still live in a fallen world. And it's still a struggle. Closing illustration to think about this. Every year at Thanksgiving, my dad and I have kind of fallen into this unofficial tradition of where he carves the turkey. When my dad carves the turkey, it's like hacking a turkey. It's, it's pitiful. So my dad carves the turkey, and he kind of always does it in this corner. We have a lot of people at my mom's house for Thanksgiving. And, and he, he kind of stands over there in the corner. And, and for the, growing up, turkey was not good. My mom, I don't know, she... It just it wasn't good. But over the years, she got better. She started buying these really expensive organic turkeys. I don't know if that helps. It. I don't know. Um, it probably makes it worse. But uh, they started getting a lot better. And I started liking turkey a little bit more. And he would pull, he'd pull the turkey out of the oven. And he would carve it. But we immediately, he would just be, like, be shoveling it off the bone into his mouth. And he'd be like, son, come over here. And we kind of like huddled around it so mom couldn't see. And we were just like shoving, you know, like big, not pieces, like, like slices of turkey, hot turkey into our mouth. Because otherwise, it's going to go sit on the platter. And it's going to be like 20 minutes. And then you're going to have cold turkey. And cold turkey, let's just be honest, cold turkey is terrible. I don't care how much gravy, right? And so we started doing that until mom caught us. And caught us, she did. And she caught us after one piece of turkey, right? So I was in this terrible position of having one taste of turkey and having to wait for 20 minutes. It would have been better if I didn't have that piece of turkey, right? Because if I hadn't had it, I wouldn't have it in my mouth. I wouldn't be thinking about it. You know, I'd just be waiting like everybody else, you know? There's very much a sense where the anticipation was unbearable. That's very much like the Christian life. We have, Romans 8 says, the first fruits of the Spirit. Which means that we've tasted. We get a little, first fruits, that was the first of the harvest. We get some of the first benefits of what the life is going to be like, free from sin and with God. Maybe you've tasted this in your marriage a few times. There's moments with your children when everything is right. 
moments of pleasure and joy. You've tasted what life can be like. You've had a taste of the Spirit, a taste of heaven, a taste of holiness, and you long for more. That's why we're groaning, because we've tasted. Groaning is a sign of a healthy appetite. And the life living, the life lived in, in the now, not yet, where we are now, it is a tension between joy and suffering. I think this is probably what, part of what Paul meant when he said, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Longing for the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, don't forget the purpose for which you've been saved. And don't get comfortable here. You're just an alien. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises that we've heard tonight. I pray that you would clarify them in our hearts and minds, that you would help us to see them in your word, and that you would, through them, by the power of your spirit, free us from the struggle with sin, that we would live holy lives pleasing to your name. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.